Father in heaven, we are uh, grateful this morning for life and breath, uh, for the mercy that you have given to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, this morning as we begin, that you would be with our brother Bill Sutton, uh, that you would strengthen him as he approaches surgery tomorrow on his hip, that you would use uh, the doctors and the nurses to provide great healing and relief to him. Uh, We pray for his recovery as well. And Father, we know as we dive in this morning, there's all kinds of things that we bring into this room that uh, uh, weigh us down. And so we lay those things at your feet. We pray, Father, now that you would give us a great vision, as you gave Daniel, of who we are and who you are and what it means to be loved and cared for and providentially provided for by you. May that give us great hope. As we look back on where we've come from and we have a vision of the future, may that give us hope for today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, a couple things. Uh, yes, I shaved my beard. Some of you may have noticed, some of you don't. Um, no, I did not donate it to science. That's all I want to talk about that. Uh, but I, truthfully, I'm not sure if I was going to be here this morning. I've I got to be honest with you, I didn't think I was going to be here at all. Uh, We had Chad graciously on standby, uh, as we were joking earlier this week, uh, you know, Old Testament apocalyptic literature, you can just kind of wing that, right? So um, he was graciously on standby. I don't know what we would have done, probably would have gathered at our tables and just prayed. Uh, But the reason is because my wife will give birth to our third child any day now, which is a lot of fun. Uh, We have two girls, uh, five and three. And so people, of course, undoubtedly, they want to know, what are you going to have? Uh, you know, especially guys will come, hey, you have two girls. What are you going to have? Are you going to finally get your boy, right? Or, or is it going to be a just girl world for you? Uh, which if, I've always said, if we have all girls, I get um, to build something in our backyard that I can just kind of go into and break things or something. You know, I need, I need something. Um, so I, the answer is, as it was with both of our girls, we don't know. We are those crazy people that still, with all of our modern technology, we do not find out what we are having. And it's uh, just crazy to me the kind of opinions that that elicits. <laughs> uh, that people tell you then, well, that's, they'll tell you immediately. That's crazy. And what I've found is there, there are really two types of parents in this world. Those who find out what they're having and those who don't. Because those who find out what they're having, they want to be prepared, right? They want to know, okay, what are we getting into what do we need to do over these next nine months to really prepare? And then, of course, there's the crazies like us that say, you know what, we can't really change one way or another. Uh, we are hoping for a human. And uh, if it's a boy or a girl, we're going to be great. Um, but then there's, there's us. And it, and it brings up kind of an interesting philosophical question. If you, um, if you couldn't change anything about the future at all, would you still want to know what it was? Would you still want to know your future if you could do nothing to change it? And that is a philosophical question uh, that was raised in a short story called The Story of Your Life. It was a science fiction short story by Ted Chiang and asked this question. If you're unfamiliar of of Chiang and his work, which you probably are, like I was, uh, this short story was recently made into an Oscar-nominated film, Arrival. I don't know if you saw Arrival. I'm not going to spoil it for you today. But buried deep beneath this story about aliens 
is really an underlying philosophical question. That if all of life is determined, all of life is out of your control, would you still want to know what is going to happen? Would you still want to know? Chang said it was Kurt Vonnegut that put this idea best in the introduction of the 25th anniversary edition of Slaughterhouse-Five. So just bear with me. I want to read this to you because I think it's great. He says, Stephen Hawking found it tantalizing that we could not remember the future. Think about that. Vonnegut, right? So the idea of remembering the future, you cannot do that. You cannot remember the future. But he says, but remembering the future is child's play for me now. Okay, so he says, that's easy for me. Now listen to what he says. I know what will become of my helpless, trusting babies because they are grown-ups now. I know how my closest friends will end up because so many of them are retired or dead now. And so to Stephen Hawking and all others younger than myself, I say, be patient. Your future will come to you and lie down at your feet like a dog who knows and likes you no matter what you are. All right, what's he saying? He's saying the future is coming for all of us, and you can do nothing to stop it. Your future is coming, and you can do nothing to stop it. And the question, would you want to know what it was? That's the question before Daniel as well, and the question before us as we get into Daniel 8. Daniel is given another vision of the future, This time it's a vision of his future and the people of Israel's future, and he can do nothing to stop it. God is coming to Daniel in a vision and saying, this is what's going to come of the people of Israel, and you can do nothing to stop it. And so why? Why? Why would God give Daniel a vision of the future if there's nothing he could do to prevent its inevitability? I think it's the same reason that Jesus told his disciples that he would suffer on the cross. John 16, Jesus said, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. In other words, I think Daniel this morning, and God through Daniel has given this vision, a vision of what's going to happen so that all of us now, even 2,500 years later, we would all recognize that even in the midst of the most dire circumstances and the greatest persecution, God is faithful. So this morning we're going to look at three visions, three visions in Daniel 8. Vision of a ram, a vision of a goat, and the vision of a little horn. A ram, a goat, and a little horn. And in looking at these three visions, we will see why knowing our past and seeing into our future gives us great hope in the faithfulness of God today. All right, so first, we're going to look at the ram. If chapter 7 last week uh, gave us a vision of a sweeping summary of all of human history and these four beasts, right, these great kingdoms, chapter 8 zeroes in, goes down into deeper detail about the second and third kingdoms. And in particular, what it's doing is giving a vision, not just of all of human history, but a vision of the people of Israel. So if you think about it this way, Daniel 7 starts very broad, all of human history for all time. And now Daniel 8, the vision says, okay, Daniel, this is what's going to happen to you. 
not just all people, but to you and to God's people. This is what's going to happen right here, right now, to you. And this gives Daniel great consternation. We'll look at that in a second. It's also important to recognize that this is where the book of Daniel switches back to Hebrew from Aramaic. So if you recall, Daniel is actually written in two different languages, Aramaic and Hebrew. A lot of theories about why that would be. But you think about it, if, if all of this before has been in Aramaic, which was the common language, right? The Gentile language. Then a vision like in Daniel 7 that's about all of human history makes sense that it would be in Aramaic, right? So the common Gentile would understand it. But now in Daniel 8, it's switching to a vision about Israel. So it fits that now we are back in Hebrew. This is a vision for the people of God. All right, so Daniel 8, what's the vision? First, let's look at the ram. Uh, 8, verse 1, look with me. It says, In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. So we know uh, that the third year of King Belshazzar was about 551 B.C. This is two years after the vision of chapter 7. Verse 2, Daniel says, I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was in Ulai Canal. And I raised my eyes, and I saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bake of the canal. So I want you to envision this yourself. This, he sees this big ram, this big male sheep with these big horns. And we're told in verse 20 that this ram represents Medo-Persia. Medo-Persia, so that's the second kingdom from last week, from chapter 7. That would be the bear, okay, if you're keeping up here. So we switch from bear to ram. Confused yet? Okay. So here's this ram. It's Medo-Persia. We're told, as verse 3 continues, that this ram had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. And so as in apocalyptic literature that we've looked at before, like the book of Revelation, these horns represent power, right? So these horns represent power, and one is greater than the other. So these two horns would represent the kingdoms of Media and Persia, these two kingdoms that then aligned together and formed one empire. And the longer horn represents Persia because it became the dominant kingdom. Eventually the leaders of Persia were the ones that eventually took control of the entire Medo-Persian empire. Also, though, it's important to note that the ram was an important symbol for the Persians. Okay, it was their adopted symbol for who they were, kind of like a mascot, if you will. It was the guardian spirit of the Persian empire was the ram. And in fact, when the king of Persia would go to battle, he would carry the head of a ram with him. So it's pretty undeniable that what we're seeing here in Daniel's vision, it's this Persian empire. Look with me, verse 4. And so Daniel, he sees this ram charging westward and northward and southward, and no beast could stand before him. There was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased, and he became great. And this is exactly what happened with the Medo-Persian empire. It expanded in these directions, right, west, north, and south, they conquered people after people. No one could stand in their way. They became great. 
So that's the first vision. A vision of an empire that would directly impact and affect the people of Israel, right? That would provide great hardship and great difficulty. So second, a ram and then a goat. The goat, look at verse 5. Verse 5, Daniel now sees, says, As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. I love the Bible. I love that. A conspicuous horn. So here's a goat. Most goats have two horns. This is a unicorn goat, okay? It's a goat with one horn. It's conspicuous because there's only one. And it's between its eyes. Okay, what does that mean? Well, we're told in verse 21 in the interpretation that this goat represents Greece, right? So it's the third kingdom from last week, from chapter 7. And that this conspicuous horn, uh, history tells us, would represent Alexander the Great. All right, so if you want to skip ahead verse 21, this is the vision's interpretation given to Daniel by Gabriel, it says, the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. All right, so what do we know about Alexander the Great? Well, I know that under Alexander the Great, uh, Greek armies advanced quickly from the west and against Persia. So here's the Medo-Persian Empire, and Alexander the Great came from the west and eventually conquered the Persian Empire empire. Verse 6, it says, he came to the ram with two horns. Okay, so remember that's Medo-Persia. So the goat comes to the ram, Greece comes against Persia, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. And I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him. But he cast him down to the ground, and he trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. So I want you to see this vision, a vision of this ram that no one could withstand. All of a sudden, even this ram is toppled. So again, this theme that we have seen time and time in the book of Daniel is whatever the kingdom, whatever the human power, all things will come to an end. There is no human kingdom that will be everlasting. Kingdoms will back at kingdoms which about kingdoms, right? They will rise and they will fall. So even a great kingdom like the Persian Empire will fall. And it did. It fell to Alexander the Great. Alexander won uh, two significant battles uh, in Asia Minor. Okay, so 334, 333. So if you are doing the math here, it's about 200 years after this vision. It's why a lot of, uh, especially liberal commentators, when they think about Daniel, it, it is so accurate. No, I mean, no one disagrees that what this is talking about is Greece and Persia and Alexander the Great. Everybody agrees. But the liberals will look at this and say, this is so accurate. There is no way that this was written in 550. No way. Because it's just too accurate. It's too detailed. 200 years later, all of these things were fulfilled. And Alexander finally subdued Persia with a victory near Nineveh in 331. So this Greek empire is expanding to the point it's even taken over Persia now. And so in verse 8, Daniel says that the goat, 
that's Greece, Alexander, became exceedingly great. Okay? Think about all the things you've ever heard about the Greek Empire. Right? Exceedingly great. And when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns towards the winds of heaven. So this corresponds again to the third beast, chapter 7. We know that Alexander's empire was exceedingly great. Right? So get this. The empire under Alexander the Great covered one and a half million square miles. That's big. And he also became very arrogant. Very arrogant. He saw himself as divine, as a lot of these uh, dictators did. He even though, to the point where he actually made his soldiers bow down to him, to worship him, okay? And one commentator put it this way, that Alexander conquered more of the world than any other previous ruler, but he was not able to conquer himself. What do you think about that? I mean, people, we still study Alexander the Great, right? Military strategy. He, he, did, he conquered more of the world than anybody else, yet he could not conquer himself. And so, it, partly due to a strenuous exertion, a dissipated life, and a raging fever, Alexander died in a drunken debauch in Babylon, not yet 33 years of age. Couldn't conquer his own demons. It's not yet 33. He died. And what happened after he died, if you know history? The empire was divided in four ways to four different rulers underneath his authority, right? Look back at verse 8. Out of it came four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of heaven, right? This is interpreted verse 22. The horn that was broken in the place of which four others award four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but notice, but not with his power. The Greek empire was never before, never again like it was. That as it became divided between these four new rulers, its power became dissipated. And never again would Greece be the same. Kingdoms rise and they fall. Human power comes and it goes. Again and again and again, this is the theme of Daniel. Whatever kingdom that you are bowing down to as a human being, that kingdom will not last and so whether you love that kingdom and you find yourself pledging allegiance to that kingdom, no, that kingdom will not last. But if you are like Daniel this morning and you find yourself persecuted by that kingdom, marginalized by that kingdom, be encouraged. That kingdom will not last. All right, so lastly, and where I want to spend most of our time this morning, the little horn. So a vision of a ram, a vision of a goat, and then a vision of a little horn. Look with me at verse 9. Daniel says, Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and toward the glorious land. This horn is quite different uh, than the little horn that we saw in chapter 7. Uh, there are some that would say that this little horn, as we get into it, and I think you'll notice this language, that perhaps this little horn refers to the Antichrist. Uh, connection to the book of Revelation, right? That that's, that's got to be what this is. And you'll see some of that language here, and, and that could be. But what I want to argue this morning 
is that the little horn had a much more immediate fulfillment in just a, a few hundred years after this vision is given. That this little horn, as history will show us, refers to Antiochus Epiphanes, okay? Antiochus IV. Okay, why does that matter and who was he? I'm going to tell you. Now notice we're told in verse 10, or sorry, sorry, go back to verse 9, that this horn grew exceedingly great towards the southeast and towards the glorious land. All right, Antiochus Epiphanes ruled Syria from 175 to 164 B.C., okay? Antiochus Epiphanes ruled Syria, and he conquered lands in all of these directions, right? So towards the south, towards the east, and towards the glorious land. What would the glorious land be? Come on, Bible scholars. Yeah, the land of Canaan, right? So here's Syria in the middle of all of that. Here's Syria in the middle of all of that, and here he is, Antiochus Epiphanes, and he led these conquests in all of these directions. Verse 10 we're told that this little horn grew great, even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground, tr tr and he trampled on them. Okay, what does this mean? What is he talking about? Remember, this is a vision given directly to the people of Israel. And so when God came to Abraham and talked about all of his descendants and the nation of Israel, how did he talk about them? What metaphor did he choose? Stars. Look towards the stars, Abraham, if you can even number them. So here we are in verse 10, what he's saying. There's going to be a ruler, and he is going to trample on the stars. In other words, he is going to be directly opposed to the people of God, to the people of Israel. And that's exactly what Antiochus Epiphanes did. He waged war directly against the people of Israel. We'll talk more about that in a second. Verse 11, this little horn became great, even as great as the prince of hosts. And regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown, and a host will be given over to it with a regular burnt offering because of transgression, and it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. So I want you to just look at a few of these things. It says, uh, the little horn, Antiochus Epiphanes, grew as great as the prince of the host. Okay, what does that mean? Who would be the prince of the host? Yahweh. Okay, how could that be? Well, Epiphanes, do you know what Epiphanes means? It means God revealed. It's a designation that Antiochus gave himself. Okay? He had coins minted with his face on it and said Epiphanes underneath it. In other words, Epiphanes made himself God. He gave himself the title God revealed. By the way, is there anybody else that we know who had a similar title given to him? Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us, right? So you can see some of the, the idea of maybe the Antichrist here, but it, this is a real person in real history, Antiochus Epiphanes. A regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overflown. What would be the place of the sanctuary for the people of Israel? The temple. The temple, in a second we'll talk more about this, but we know that Antiochus Epiphanes desecrated the temple, had its doors sealed, and prevented the people of Israel from worshiping anymore. Had the sacrificial system, the morning and evening sacrifices, completely shut down. 
So here's Daniel, and he's foreseeing all of this in just a few hundred years that would be fulfilled. Verse 23 confirms all of this. So if you want to skip ahead to verse 23. Again, this is the interpretation that Gabriel gives Daniel. Verse 23, we're told, At the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face. Okay, so this is the little horn. A king of bold face. One who understands riddles shall arise. His power will be great, but not by his own power. He will cause fearful destruction and succeed in what he does. He will destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. And by his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. And in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many. And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken but by no human hand. So Antiochus Epiphanes, he was bold, a bold face. He was deceptive, cunning. He was ruthless. He came to power through lying and deceit. He was powerful. Notice again here it says he was powerful, but not because of himself. Every ruler throughout human history has one thing in common, They are not ultimately in charge, whether they know it or not. That's been a theme throughout the book of Daniel. That even the most ruthless dictator still is not as in control as they think they are. That ultimately God is in the one who's in control. So we go all back to Daniel 1, remember what it says about Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians, that it was God who led the people of Israel to be held captive by the Babylonians. God is in control. God is in charge. Kingdoms rise. They fall. Even Antiochus Epiphanes, as great as he was, as ruthless as he was, ultimately, ultimately, he was not in charge. It was God who was in charge. God is the one who is foretelling all of this is going to come to pass. Uh, He was destructive, especially to Jerusalem, especially to the people of Israel, especially to the temple. So Antiochus Epiphanes actually uh, started a program to completely um, change the Jewish culture and the Jewish religion. It was a Hellenistic program to completely eradicate the Jewish faith from their people. And that began with erecting a pagan uh, altar, with putting a statue of Jupiter in front of the altar in the temple, completely desecrating it, giving an order to stop the sacrifices that were happening at the temple morning and evening, and eventually even closing the doors of the temple and having it shut, preventing worship from happening for the people of Israel. If you think about persecution and the kind of persecution we've talked about throughout the book of Daniel, this is completely different. This is not just bow down before you or I'm going to kill you. This is I'm going to completely eradicate your form of worship from you, prevent you from doing it, and if I catch you doing it, you will be put to death. That is exactly what Antiochus Epiphanes did. He fooled many people, he was cunning, and he exalted himself in the place of God. He opposed God, and he opposed the people of God. And so the question for us this morning is, what do you do with a vision like that? If the future is out of your control, would you still want to know it? Put put yourself in the place of Daniel. 
And here you are, Daniel, and this is the vision you've been given. And God now, it's different now. In the beginning, it was visions about Nebuchadnezzar, how to interpret his dream. And yeah, that bothered Daniel, but this was just about Nebuchadnezzar. Or, or last week, Daniel 7, right? It's, it's all of human history, but now this vision's different. This vision's personal. In other words, this is what's going to happen to you, your people, Daniel. How do you think Daniel responded? Look at verse 27. I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. It made him sick. He stayed in bed. He didn't know what to do with it. And then I rose and I went about the king's business, he says, but I was appalled by the vision and I did not understand it. This vision is personal. God is now telling Daniel giving him a vision. This is what's going to happen, not just to any people, but to my people. And there is nothing you can do to stop it. Why would he do that? Well, notice what Daniel says at the end probably gives us some pause this morning. What does Daniel say? I did not understand it. Well, if Daniel doesn't understand his own vision, how are we going to understand it, right? Well, I want you to know that we actually have something that Daniel doesn't. We can't understand it this morning. And that's not because we are wiser than Daniel. I'm not arguing for that at all. It's just that we live 2,500 years later. We have the benefit of perspective, the knowledge of history. You see, if you were Daniel in this moment, being given this vision, you know nothing of the Persians, and you know nothing of Greece, you know nothing of Alexander of the Great, and you know nothing of Antiochus Epiphanes. You're just given this vision of a ram and a goat and a little horn, and you know something bad is going to happen, not just in general, but to the people of God, to the people of Israel. But 25 years, 100 years later, we can look back and see that all of these visions were fulfilled. But not only in the next few hundred years, but we also know the end of the story, don't we? That as Peter says in 1 Peter 1, Right? We have this perspective of the knowledge of Jesus Christ as Christians that not only can we look back at our history, but we can look forward. And that changes the way that we think about today. So what's the end of the story? I want you to look at verse 13. In verse 13, Daniel asked this question, he says, then I heard the Holy One speaking. Another one, Holy One said to the one who spoke, he says, how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering? The transgression makes desolate and the giving over of the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot. So notice of all the things that have just been foretold to Daniel, what's the one thing he's most concerned about? The worship of God. Here's all of these things that are going to happen. I have one question. How long is the worship of God going to be hindered? How long will the temple be desecrated? How long will we be pre prevented from coming together as a people and worshiping God together? Verse 14 gives the answer. And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, and then the sanctuary will be restored to its rightful state. Now, there's a couple ways to understand 2,300 evenings and mornings. One way is to take those as a package, evening and morning, so 2,300 days. That would be one way. Another way, though, is to recognize that what happened in the temple was evening and morning 
right? Sacrifices. So in other words, how long will worship be prevented from happening? Well, for 2,300 sacrifices. 2,300 evening and morning sacrifices will be prevented. Well, how many days is that? Math majors? Yeah, it's about 1,150, right? 1,150, take it in half. 1,150 days, which is about three years. Okay, why does that matter? Why does that matter? Well, in 168 B.C., Antiochus built a pagan altar, and he ordered the Jews to worship pagan gods, not just in general. He ordered them to worship pagan gods in the temple. I want you to understand that. So if somebody came into our church today and said, you can't worship God anymore, Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit. You must worship somebody different inside of your church. That's what's going on. He stopped the sacrifices. He put up a statue of Jupiter in front of the altar, and he put people to death that they refused to worship him. And in 167, the temple doors were closed, and Jews could no longer go into the temple to worship at all. And during this time, many Jews fled. What would you do, right? They fled, and if you're fleeing Jerusalem, where are you going to go if you've ever been there? The Bible calls it the wilderness. If you're like me, uh, early on reading the Bible, and I picture the wilderness, I picture like Yosemite Valley, right? (laughs) It's not that. (laughs) If you've ever been there, it is the most desolate, arid desert that you'd ever been to. So they flee to the desert. And these Jewish rebels eventually had a leader who had five sons, the five sons of Maccabee. You've heard of the Maccabeans before. This became the Maccabean Revolt. The five sons of Maccabee would rally these rebel Jews and they would lead these um, campaigns into Jerusalem, these guerrilla raids trying to regain the temple. It's an incredible story. Their goal was to get the temple back. And so raid after raid after raid, they came and attacked. And we know that on December 25th, And 165 B.C., Judah Maccabeus led the Jews in rededicating the temple, having gotten it back approximately 1,150 days after it was taken away. That's amazing. That's amazing. He ordered the temple to be cleansed, a new altar to be built in its place. And according to Talmud, we know that they needed unadulterated and undefiled olive oil to be put in the lampstand, to be burned. And their problem, if you know the story, is they only had just enough for one night. And it would take about eight days in order for them to get more. And yet, Jewish history, Jewish tradition, tells us that this little bit of oil, just last for one night, lasted for eight days. It was a miracle. Upon rededicating the temple again, having gotten it back from persecution, this little vial of oil lasted for eight days. And what holiday is celebrated today still to commemorate that happening? Hanukkah. That's Hanukkah. To this day, Hanukkah is a holiday that celebrates the faithfulness of God in the midst of dire circumstances. The faithfulness of God 
in the midst of all circumstances. And what's interesting about the menorah during Hanukkah is it doesn't have seven branches as it traditionally usually does, but the Hanukkah menorah actually has nine, right? Eight for the eight days that the oil lasted burning, right? And then the, the one, the center branch, the center arm, is taller than the others. And it's used to light all of the other branches. Do you want to know what that branch is called? It's called the servant branch. And so you wonder, why is it that Jesus said, I am the light of the world to a Jewish audience? I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. I am the suffering servant who lights all other lights. I am the faithful one that in the midst of every dire circumstance and every form of persecution, I will be victorious. And so in John 10, and this is where we're in this morning, I'll go, let's, let's go to your tables. In John 10, John 10, 27. If you can, turn there, because this is great. If you can't, that's okay, just listen. It was during Hanukkah. It was during Hanukkah, or the Feast of Dedication, that Jesus said these words. That's significant. So during Hanukkah, during the Feast of Dedication, Jesus said this. He said, My sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. What is Jesus saying to us this morning? He's saying, if you are my sheep, there is no one who can snatch you out of my hand. Not Nebuchadnezzar, not Persia, not Greece, not Alexander the Great, not Antiochus Epiphanes, not even Satan himself. There will be kingdoms that will rise, that will fall. Even in the last days, there will be a kingdom unlike any other that will persecute us to our very bitter end. And even in all of that, you are my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and no one can snatch them out of my hand. Jesus Christ. You see, we know the end of the story. We know that one day he will come again, and he will be victorious over all kings and all kingdoms for all time. And so as we look back on our history, as we look forward, the question is, how does that change the way that we live with hope and faith today? Let me pray for you and send you to your tables. Father, we love uh, your word. We love um, not only its mystery, but also its clarity. So, Father, we thank you for some of that clarity this morning. We recognize that we are feeble, and even as we approach this kind of prophecy, even with the historical benefit that we have being able to look back, that it's easy to get lost in it. So, Father, we pray as we come to our tables, as we discuss these things, that you would overwhelm us with your sovereignty, overwhelm us with your foreknowledge and your bigness, and overwhelm us with your grace, that in your word you would help us to understand who we were, where we've come from, but also where we're going. And I pray that for all of us men this morning that that would change the way that we think about living faithfully today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.